We come to this uh, revelation of God to Abraham, and it was a long time coming. I will have more to say about the 13 years of silence between the end of chapter 16 and chapter 17. But it appears that God had not spoken to Abraham for 13 years. And now God reveals himself to Abraham as God Almighty. And he admonishes him to walk before him and blameless. And then he says to him this, that I may make my covenant between me and you. Really, he's saying, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you. We live in a world in which promises are made and broken with little thought. If something better comes along, our word is flexible. If I need something from you, then my word is leverage to get it. If I think it will help my cause, I will cross my heart and hope to die. Promise-making, though, and promise-breaking is blatant in the world in which we live. I think we see it very often in the world of politics, and we're so much aware of it in the politics because of the media who has a record of almost everything every politician has ever said. And we realize how, realize how quickly when they say something, they can change depending on the circumstances of the day. As I was thinking this through, though, promise-making and promise-breaking is just not an art that's been perfected in general by politicians, but rather it's something that is perfected in all of our lives. It's something that is practiced in so many of us. We make promises and then we break them. Promises as little as I will see you at 3 o'clock for coffee. Or I will come to your house for dinner at such and such a night. And then something else comes along and we break our word. And so promise breaking is not just something that is in the realm of politics. But it is in the realm of all of our lives. So what do we make when God promises something? What do we make of it when God makes a covenant? Is God like us? Is God like the men and women that he has created? I was reading in Titus chapter 1 today that it very clearly says God cannot lie. And so when God enters into a covenant with mankind or with men and women, he makes a promise that he cannot break. And this word covenant that we find here in Genesis chapter 17 is really front and center of what is going on in this chapter. The word is used 13 times in this particular chapter. Nine of them, it is my covenant with the people. The Bible takes an everyday word, covenant, and it pours into it special or biblical meaning. And really, I think we are meant to stop and think this through when we come to Genesis chapter 17. Because a covenant is like a promise. And so we have to stop and think, okay, what makes a promise of God different than a promise of man? What makes this covenant that God makes with Abraham and the covenants that he makes with us different than any other promise? Covenants were just not something that God made with people. In fact, covenants were very frequent in the world in which Abraham lived. Covenants were made between a superior king and another king. He would provide this if this other kingdom would provide that. Covenants were made between a king and his people. The king would provide this, and in response, the people then would do this for the king. In other words, it's a kind of agreement, almost a quid pro quo kind of agreement. But one of the amazing things about a biblical covenant, or the covenant that we find in the Bible, or a God that makes covenant, is God is a deity. He's the only deity that I'm aware of that makes a covenant with his people. 
And so we have a very common everyday reality, covenants made, and it's made very special in the fact that we have God, a deity, who makes a covenant with people. Think this through for a couple moments. Try to wrap your head around this, if you can, the fact that God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the possessor of heaven and earth, that God makes a covenant or a promise to Abraham, and he does so with us, that he will never, ever break. He will never go back on his word. He will never find a reason to say, I can't do that or I won't do that anymore. That should make us sit up and think a little bit. And we think, well, what is God covenanting with us to do? What is God promising us to do? And we find the promises of God fill the pages of Scripture. But in a nutshell, God is willing to commit himself to a people in a covenant. As we think that through, I think, well, what is unique about a covenant with God and his people? Well, first of all, a covenant between God and his people always comes to us at God's initiative. And it's rooted in God's sovereignty. It always comes from God to us, never from man or woman towards God. And a covenant with God is never a pact between equals. It is not a negotiated deal where we come before God and present our case and God presents his case and we come up with an agreement. No, God announces his promises to us. He announces the boundaries or the, or, or the, the, the boundaries of that um, covenant. He lays down the terms and he presents them to us. And the background of God's covenants to us is always grace. And they're always asymmetrical. They're, they're not an equal relationship. Secondly, and that blows out of that or flows out of that, the covenants that God makes with us are two-sided. It's true that God always takes the initiative and that God always bears the cost of making the covenant. For example, think about Genesis 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abraham is sleeping and God is the one that walks between the divided animals and says, if I break my promises, I will die. But the human response to a covenant of God is still an important element of a covenant. God comes to Abraham and he says, walk before me and be blameless. He says a little bit later, if you refuse to take the sign of the covenant, you will be cut off from the people. And so think about this. Think about John 3.16. Many of us are familiar with John 3.16. It, in a sense, is an articulation of a covenant of grace, which I might say a little bit more a little bit later. What is how does it begin? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's an uh, amazing um, commitment that God makes to people. God takes the initiative. God bears the cost. He sends his son to this earth to live in this earth and to die. But then there's the response of the people that whoever believes in him should not perish but will be saved. You see, those are, that's how Scripture kind of works. There's the declarations that God makes. There's the statements that God makes. And then there's the commands or the imperatives of our response to him. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we see this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the indicative. That's the statement that God makes. Now repent and believe the gospel. That's our response. That's our responsibility to the statements that God makes. And there's a third element to these 
covenants that God makes. And I hope you think these through because they're so practical in our lives. There's a, a, an incredible practical benefit to a covenant. The divine covenant gives our human lives a considerable measure of predictability. In other words, what happens when God makes a covenant with us, he sets the boundaries for us. He establishes the way that we ought to live. He establishes the framework for our life. We know what God expects from us. We know what we are to do in response to the covenant that God has made. We understand what the implications of obedience and disobedience are. There, there's no darkness. There's no hidden um, uh, framework. There's no small fine print there. God makes it very clear to us what are the boundaries of the covenant that he makes. And we have one God. We have one responsibility. And this covenant provides for us a framework of stability. It's incredible when you think about it. We understand then what are the boundaries of our life. And a covenant also provides security. It reminds us that the world in which we live is not random. And even though we don't know the future, God knows the future. Because he has established a covenant which is full of promises which he will bring to pass in our lives. I was thinking about this when it relates to homes. I think in a home where there's no rules or there's no regulations or there's no guidelines, there's chaos. And you can see that in the lives of kids. They're insecure. They're, they're, they're not comfortable. They, they don't know what they can do or what they can't do. Whereas you go into a home where there's boundaries and where there's a framework, when there's expectations, then the children understand what the boundaries are and they know how they can live their lives. They know how they can pattern their lives. No framework leads to an arbitrariness in life. It seems leads to a randomness and an unpredictableness. But God doesn't leave us in that state. He comes to us and he establishes a framework in a covenant. And so, when we trust God, when we put our faith in God, when we say, I, I, I want to enter into that covenant with you, we enter into a predict predictable relationship, one with secure outcomes. Think of Romans, for instance, and we say this all the time, or often here, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's a predictable reality of a relationship with God. Our world might seem like it's a mess. Our world might not make sense to us. We might be going through trials and difficulties, but we know that when we're in a covenant relationship with God, he will pattern all the things of our lives to work out to good. We understand, too, that when we're in a covenant relationship with God, where he says in Philippians, he who begins a good work in you will be what? will be faithful to complete it at the comingness of Christ. He won't leave it undone. He won't leave us half finished. He won't forget about us along the way. God will keep his word. There's a predictable reality that no matter how difficult it is to walk with God, he will perfect his work and his righteousness in us in that final day. Martin Luther once said that religion consists in personal pronouns. That's why Paul could say, my God, my God. He was in a relationship with God. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. When we enter into a covenant with God, when we enter into a relationship with God, it's as though God says, all that I have, 
All that I am is yours. I shall use all of my godness for your good and for your benefit. And so a covenant is a relationship with God. Think about that for a moment. We can enter into a relationship with the living God. With the God who possesses heaven and earth. With the God who made heaven and earth. And as we come to this particular chapter, Genesis chapter 17, we find that God fills the sentences of that particular chapter, of this particular chapter. This chapter is about God. God simply dominates this particular chapter. His revelation fills the sentences from verse 1 to verse 22. From verse 1, when God appears to Abraham, to verse 22, when it says God has finished talking with Abraham, he departs from him, and then all the way through, we find God said, God said, God said. And we find in there, as for me, I will do this. As for you, Abraham, you do this. As for Sarah, I will do this. As for Ishmael, I will do this. This chapter is about God. I don't know if you listen to the language as, as it was being read. These things become so familiar or so easy to throw out of our conscience. But it says God appeared to Abraham and God speaks with Abraham. I, I know the ESV says too, but many of the translations uh, say God spoke with Abraham. It, there's a difference there. Speaking to someone is, is sort of looking down or it's sort of almost a power or authority structure. Speaking with someone is a, is a, is a friendship. It's a relationship. God speaks with Abraham. God listens to Abraham. Abraham says to God, well, what about Ishmael? What are you going to do with Ishmael? And God says, well, Abraham, because you love Ishmael so much, I will make him father of 12 princes. And then when it's all over, this is, I don't know if you caught this, but when it's all over, when God finished talking with him, I find that amazing. Do you not that, that we can have a relationship with God where there's communication, where there is friendship? It really leaves me in awe. I was pinching myself again this week as I was thinking this through. I really was lost for words. I was, I was really unsure of whether or not I could say this and if it's really true. But I have a personal relationship with God. And I talk with him and he talks with me. He communicates to me through his word. He communicates to, to me with his spirit. He communicates to me in so many different ways. It's a personal relationship. And the question is, do you have a relationship with God? Or is he just some distant being up in the middle of nowhere that you're afraid of? No, the Bible tells us how God has come to us. How God has come to earth. How God invites us into a covenant relationship with him. And you can have such a relationship with the living God. I just want to make sort of three observations from the text. The first is regarding the silence that I mentioned. There is a silence of God that sometimes baffles us. Is that not true? It said when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. By and of itself, that's not that remarkable. But then you read verse 16 of chapter 16, and you read there that Abraham was 86 years old 
when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Thirteen years. There's thirteen years of silence. Whether there's silence that God didn't speak to Abraham or whether it's silence that there's nothing recorded, there's nonetheless 13 years of silence. 13 years of Abraham clinging to the promises of God. 13 years of Abraham working through this situation of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. And it's fascinating to me, when God appears to Abraham now 13 years later, he doesn't apologize He simply affirms his promises to him. You will be very fruitful, Abraham, but through Sarah, a son from your own body and from your wife, and you will receive the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. What I thought about is, and it's true of my life, and I know it's true of some of your life, is why does God sometimes take the long route? In fact, why does God most often take the long route? And why does God take the hard route in our lives? He could so easily just snap his fingers and in an instant fix things and correct things and and fulfill the promises that he has made to us. But have you ever noticed in your life that that so often is not the case? That you cling to promises day after day, month after month, year after year? If you recall, we were in the book of James a little while ago. And there James wrote about how trials were meant for our good. How they test our faith, how they produce character in us, and they cultivate in us a steadfastness. And that when we have stood the test of time, we will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I was thinking about these 13 years, these 13 years of Abraham. What was going on in his head? I certainly think, Part of the 13 years was, I don't know if he beat himself up or is wrestling it through, but, but his attempt to fulfill the promise of God on his own by taking Hagar into his bed and impregnating her. It was a failure on his part to not fully believe or embrace the promise of God to take matters into his own hand. There were also years, though, in which Abraham, I think, was strengthened in his faith as he rehearsed the promises of God and he he put the promises of God against his failure and he reminded himself, no, God has promised me, God has sworn to me, God has said this to me. And I think probably as those 13 years dragged on, more and more he realized his utter inability to bring about what God had promised. Now he's 99 years old, he's as good as dead His wife is 90 years old. Her womb is as good as shriveled up. And Abraham must have come to the point where if anything's going to happen, it's going to have to be God. I was reading one commentator, and he reminds us that God is never in a hurry. And it's the unhurriedness of God that seems strange to us and even unwelcomed to us in times. See, we have the passage of time here with no noticeable move towards promise. No noticeable move towards promise fulfillment. And that can pose a problem for faith, can't it? It can wear on our faith when we're hanging on to a promise of God as we should. We're trusting God as we should that he will come through and he will will bring about his word in our life. But the longer time goes on, the more it wears on us. We prefer a God of action. 
We prefer a God of immediate things. Patience is the last thing that's on our lives. But if you've walked with God for any length of time, I think you've come to realize that much of life, much of Christian life is undramatic and quite ordinary. Between these 16, 16, and 17, one, these 13 years, I don't know if there was a lot happening, but there was day-to-day living. Day-to-day walking, day-to-day day working out things, day-to-day working through life. Sometimes maybe feeling God is silent, sometimes um, trusting in his promises. But I guess the question to all of us is, how are you doing in the ordinariness of life? How are you doing between promise and promise fulfillment? How are you thinking? What are you thinking? So much of covenant living, so much of a relationship with God is ordinary stuff filling ordinary days. And so we come here and and we read there that God appears to Abraham at just the right time. I, I kind of got to imagine that after 13 years, Abraham was sort of at the point now and he, he needed to hear from God again. He needed, a, he needed a conversation with God again. And so God reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is a reference to God's unlimited power. And doesn't that make sense now? Abraham has probably concluded, I'm never going to have a son by Sarah. And how does God reveal himself to him? As God Almighty. El Shaddai, the God of unlimited power. God is not at a loss here. God is not baffled by the the time or the years that had gone by. And God is saying to Abraham, I am not limited by what limits you. I am God Almighty. And in response to this revelation of God, God says to Abraham, walk, which is an imperative, walk before me. Live and move openly before me. Place yourself under my care. Place yourself under my guidance, under my protection, under my watchful eye. And be blameless. And he says, if you do that, or as you do that, two outcomes will follow. I will confirm my covenant, and I will increase your number greatly. Before God describes his covenant to Abraham, he calls him to obedience and He expects Abraham to respond with a living and an active faith. I was just reading this past week in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where we are admonished, and Timothy is admonished, let those who name the name of the Lord, if you confess and profess to be in a relationship with God, let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's obedience. That's walking before God and being blameless before him. And what's Abraham's response? He falls on his face. He's humbled by the presence of God. I know it doesn't happen often. We don't read it a a terrible amount in the Bible. We read it in Revelation of the angels falling before God. But have you ever fallen on your face before God? Have you ever been so struck by a word of God, so overwhelmed by the presence of God, that you couldn't stand any longer, you couldn't even kneel, you just fell on your face before God. I don't know if it's a frequent thing in our lives, but there is room for it in our lives. So the first thing I think that we realize is that sometimes the silence of God baffles us. Then we come to the promises of God that he makes in this covenant, and it's 
really similar along these lines, the promises of God that stretch our faith. In verse 4 at the beginning, I know the ESV says, um, behold, but many other translations say, as for me. This is God's now commitment. As for me, Abraham, this is what I am covenanting with you to do. And then you will find as for me three other times. You will find it in um, uh, verse 9 where he says, as for you, Abraham, you'll find it in verse 15, as for your wife, Sarah. And then you'll find it in verse 20, as for Ishmael. God is telling Abraham what he's going to do. He's stating his promises. He's establishing the boundaries of his relationship with Abraham. They're not new to us or new to Abraham. We came across them in chapter 12 and in chapter 15. But they are reaffirmed now to Abraham. And it's God establishing or reminding him of the covenant framework. And of the fact that he will bear the responsibility and the cost of that covenant. Notice the I wills in, in, in verses 4 to 8. The things that God embraces and God takes on. And they can be summarized simply by this. God is reaffirming. I will give you descendants that number like the stars of the skies or like the dust of the earth. And I will give you the land of Canaan to dwell in. And then God changes his name. It's amazing to me. God changes his name. This alone is an expression of power and authority. To, uh, to, to name something is to have power or authority over it. Daniel and his three friends, when they were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, their names were changed. They were named after gods of Babylon, an expression of the power of their captives over them. And so God changes his name from Abraham, God of many, to Abraham, father of a multitude. Father of many to father of a multitude. There's something strange going on here, though. When you, if you work this through in your head a little bit, you think, well, wait a minute, father of many? The reality is, is for the past 86 years, Abraham had been the father of none. And yet his name was father of many. And it was only in the past 13 years that he had been the father of one. And we know his virility wasn't in question, for he's able to impregnate Hagar. And yet for 86 years, he had no children. And now for the past 13 years, he has one child. What would people have thought when they realized that about Abraham? He's a man whose name doesn't match him. But God doesn't just leave him at Abraham. He changes his name to Abraham, meaning a father of multitude at 99 years old. This is an incredible thing that God does to sort of reaffirm in Abraham that he will keep his word. That he will keep his word promised to him a father of multitudes at 99 years old when he's as good as dead and to make the point even sort of more highlighted he says that Abraham it's not going to happen through your son Ishmael who's already born it's going to happen through a son that I'm going to give to you through Sarah your wife and Abraham believed God it's so hard for us to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Abraham and Sarah. I, I can just imagine them waking up for coffee one morning in their tent, chatting about this sort of thing maybe a day later or a couple days later, amazed that God had changed both of their names, amazed that God had said, that Sarah said, Abraham, you know your name is Abraham? I'm having a hard time getting used to calling you Abraham because you're going to be a father of a multitude. 
And Abraham says, well, as for you, Sarah, your name is Sarah now. You're a princess, and kings are going to come from your room. Sarah, this just blows my mind. Do we think God can? Yes, Abraham, we do. Yes, Sarah, God can. Yes, Sarah, I believe God can keep his word. And from that day on, everyone would know this is a spiritual birth, or a supernatural birth, sorry. They would know that, that this was something that, that was not natural. This was something that was not the doing of Abraham and Sarah. This was God doing this because they were both as good as dead when it came to fertility. And when the child was born, everyone would look at that child and say, that is God's doing. And then there's the promise of the land, the, the land of Canaan. Think this through just a little bit again. The land of Canaan. This is a big picture kind of thing, but I want us to kind of wrap our heads around the promises. Clearly, Abraham would not receive this land. God said to Abraham, I will give you a land, but we know that Abraham wouldn't receive this land. Clearly, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to to 15, we make clear that Abraham is going to be dead. The the land would not be, be, be occupied until 400 years later. So how do we make sense then of Genesis 17, 8, where it says, I will give to you, Abraham, and your descendants, this land. It must be something that Abraham receives after he dies. And so in this text, there is an implicit reference to the resurrection. As I said a few weeks back, Abraham is looking beyond this world to the fulfillment of the land of promise in a world to come. Hebrews tells us his desire was for a better country. That is a heavenly one. I I don't understand it fully, but as Abraham began to wrestle through the promises of God, he began to grasp the, the, the vastness of God's promise, the bigness of God's promise. He began to glimpse something of the fact that this just wasn't a promise for the here and now. It was actually a promise for eternity. And Hebrews tells us, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their father, for he has prepared for them a city. For Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So if Abraham is told he will enjoy the land, but he will die before he takes possession of it, then that means he's going to be brought back to life. I don't think there's any explanation for it. And therefore Abraham must have assumed or somehow grasped the resurrection from the dead. And he had faith to, to see this promised land beyond the world that he lived in as part of the new heavens and the new earth. That's when the promise to Abraham would be filled. Not in this age, but in the age to come. There Abraham would enjoy his promised inheritance. So the reality is this, and what we need to think through is that death doesn't negate the promises of God. Death does not make them null and void. Death cannot ruin your inheritance. That's why we can go to our graves still holding on to the promises of God. And then there's a second point. It's about this covenant that God makes with Abraham. It's an indescribable gift. I want us to kind of get it. Genesis 17, 7. God says, I will keep my covenant 
to be God to you and to your offspring forever. This is, this is, this is nuts. It, it's just beyond comprehension, really. It's a pledge that, that, I, that, that really just kind of leaves your mouth just as you think it through. God is saying, I will be God to you. And by this, what he's saying is that all that God should be and all that God could be and all that God will be, he will be to you, Abraham. You see, once God says this to us, he establishes a caring, protecting relationship with, which is as permanent as the God who makes it. This is a relationship that we enter into with God that no time can exhaust, no circumstances can change, no disaster can destroy, no catastrophe can crush, that no human abandonment can ever alter. One theologian, a Scottish theologian, says this. He says, I will be God to you. That's what God said to Abraham. And although these words, he says, occur in the first half of Genesis, he says, there is not a more glorious promise in all of the Bible he says, there is a commitment here. I will be your God. The most glorious thing is that God is committed to us. God is committed to being our God. I can't wrap my head around that. Donald McLeod goes on and he says this. What did God say to Abraham? I will be your God. What does that mean? It means that God is saying to Abraham, I will be for you. I will exist for you. I will exercise my godness for you. I will be committed to you. There is no way that can be approved upon. These words of the Abrahamic covenant have never been excelled and never will be. Never forget that, loved ones. God will never abandon you. God will never leave you alone. God has committed himself to be in relationship with you. In the words of one commentator, when God says, I will be God to you, you have the world. And the last thing, just I've got to say it really quickly, I guess, because we're going to run out of time, is certainly that a devotion to God is revealed through obedience. You can go through this text and you can read the ways in which Abraham obeyed God. God told him to walk before him and be blameless. It's a single-minded devotion and commitment to him. Twice we read that Abraham falls on his face before God as an act of worship. It's an act of submission to God. And then there's the as for you in verse 9 to Abraham, as for you, what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to then take the mark of the covenant in his body. And you notice that Abraham didn't wait. He didn't work it through and say, well, maybe in a month we'll do this. That very day, that very day, every male in his house was circumcised. It's fascinating to me. It's like God comes to the men of his house and he says something like this. God made a covenant with me. And this is what it means for you. At the very least, when you enter into a relationship with God, it has implications for those who are in relationship with you. If you're the leader of a home, you do need to set the boundaries for your home. I've entered into a relationship with God, and this is what it means for you, honey. I've entered into a relationship with you, God, and this is what it means for you, son. It's, it's something that, 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 that leaks out or that spreads out from us. It's fascinating. I, I can't imagine what was going through the men's minds that day. Abraham comes to them and says, God, 
has called me to do this and this is what it means for you and at least 318, I'm sure there was more, were circumcised. They woke up in one state and they went to bed in another state. I think we need to know, and I can't say all that I want to say here either, but we need to know that circumcision is not still the mark of the covenant today. You read the book of Acts and you find there in chapter 15, some of the Judaizers wanted to make it the mark. They said, the only way you can be saved is if you're circumcised. And the New Testament was very, very clear that circumcision is no longer the mark of being in a covenant relationship with God. It seems to me that at the very least, it is faith in God through which then or after which he pours out his spirit into us. And we are baptized by one spirit into a covenant relationship with God through faith. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, as you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When you trust in God, when you believe in God, when God comes to you and says, listen, I will do this and this and this for you, will you trust me? When you put your faith in God, then he fills you with his spirit. He gives you a down payment, so to speak, of your inheritance to come. It's a wonderful mark, so to speak. It's a wonderful reality that follows us for the rest of our life. But God does call us to obedience in that relationship. May God open up to us an understanding of how we, too, can be in relationship with him. Father, we thank you for your word today. It's amazing how your word continues to have relevance to us and how it continues to speak into our lives. I must admit I've been somewhat overwhelmed by this passage uh, this week. So much of it has just caught me off guard, has surprised me. So much of it has showed me how little I really understand of your covenants and of your relationship with your people still. But I do know enough to grasp the reality that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son for it. And I do understand and I've experienced that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Father, would you draw people into your covenant of grace even today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.